I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. This week, we're feeling lucky as we explore one of the most iconic characters in film history. Tonight, we're talking 1971's Dirty Harry, directed by Don Siegel and starring Clint Eastwood, the one and only. One and only. How do you feel about Eastwood generally? Dude, I'm sure we'll get into him, but I really like him i i okay. will say I, I think i like him more as an actor than maybe a director but i also love him as a director and i respect him yeah like, i think he's he's just like and and i'll and he's in the, in the upper pantheon of like coolest people ever yeah, to maybe. come out of hollywood i don't know i i have a different opinion we can we can dive into Ooh. it I, i'm Ooh. we'll get into it we'll get into yeah, it yeah let's, let's save it i don't know why i'm doing this up front <laughs> Let's do a quick board review, though, to orient ourselves. At number one on the board, we've got You Can Count On Me, number two, Akiru, number three, M, number four, Rio Bravo, number five, Operation Condor, number six, Anomalisa, number seven, Amadeus, number eight, Pi, number nine, Universal Soldier, number 10, The Limey, number 11, Coraline, number 12, The Straight Story, number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, number 14, The Karate Kid, number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, number 16, Tonight's Episode, Dirty Harry, number 17, Titan, number 18, Snatch, number 19, Strange Days, and number 20, The Terminator. 1971's Dirty Harry. Just to do a quick streaming check here, Drew. Yeah. I could only see on my end in any way, pay to rent at like Prime, Redbox, Voodoo, and Apple, also known on this show as The Usual Suspects. <laughs> uh, but I, I was, again, kind of surprised that a streaming service doesn't really have this right now. But a uh, couple of bucks, iconic film. Should be obtainable. If you can't find Dirty Harry, I don't know what to tell you. It's very easy to find, but unfortunately not free anywhere. So Not free. You pony up the bucks. Jared, this is one of your choices. It's been on the board for a little while, but it's not been on too long. Uh, we, I, I'm trying to remember when you put it on, but uh, how did this get on the board and, and what were your thoughts going in? I remember the weather was nice. Because I was going to play disc golf with my buddy Jeff. So this must have been several months ago. At least. Our buddy Jeff, we should say. Our buddy Jeff. That's right. You know Jeff as well. Jeff is the is the, one of the reasons I live in Atlanta now, the fact that you know Jeff. But that's a whole other story. So Jeff and I were carpooling together to play disc golf with some friends. And he mentioned that he had just seen this movie either the night before or a couple of days before. I was like, oh, it was great. And I thought, it's like, Dirty Harry. Like, that is such an iconic movie. I wouldn't quite call it a shamer because it's it's not necessarily one that I think everyone has seen, but we all know some of the lines from this movie, and it's just considered a super iconic Clint Eastwood performance. I was like, you know, I've never seen that. I think I'd kind of thrown it in that category of like, well, you don't need to see it. 
you know the line what's 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 it about which i don't know why i put it in that basket but i thought that might be a fun one for the board we've had a lot of good luck in the 70s we talked about movies like the taking of pelham one two three and then in our personal life off record you and i have talked about french connection and different things and I mean, it's it's kind of obvious, I guess, that there are a lot of great movies coming out in the '70s. That's something that's often been said, but that is something that we've we've had good luck with on the show. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know, I personally love a lot of what I've seen from Clint Eastwood. I've never seen this movie. Jeff recommends it. Like, let's get it up there. And I think finding out that you also had not seen it kind of cemented it. I was like, let's do it. This is like kind of it, it's it's. Again, not quite a shamer, but it's something. It's something that we, it's kind of surprising that both of us have not seen it. It's definitely, it's a prominent piece of film history. Mm -hmm, For sure. So, yeah. So it's, again, like, I think shamer is one where it's like, this movie is so fucking good. Like, how the hell have you missed it kind of thing? And like, that, that definitely does not apply to this movie. But in terms of like orienting yourself in the history of like, big action movie characters. You know, Harry Callahan is one of the greats. It's it's one of the, you know, the ones that that people cite as like the best, you know, action characters of all time. Yeah, and we've seen so many variations on this type of character since this movie came out. Um and I agree, it's really not it's not a shamer. Like I also think shamers kind of somewhat go in line with your generation, whatever that is. Like if you haven't seen something that everyone your age has seen, like it's like, whoa, what the hell are you doing? Like for you and I, E.T. was a shared one, just and for six sure. cents and things like that. This is not a movie that I would say like everyone our age has seen. It's a movie that we all know of, of course, but I would honestly guess that like less than half the people I know my age have seen this movie, even though we all know if someone was to name Dirty Harry the movie. Somehow the film is iconic, but I do f- feel it's underviewed for our generation. Do you remember the first time you became aware of Dirty Harry as a character or as a movie? No, I don't. I wish I could remember. I'm sure it was through the line, the iconic, like, do you feel lucky punk line? Knowing like me and my viewing history, I'm guessing it was part of some sort of like I love the 70s clip show or actually probably predated that. I don't know what, but somehow, certainly pre-YouTube, I had seen that clip in isolation. It's also something that is riffed on a lot and mocked and made fun of. A lot of times we cover these sort of iconic lines, and, and that's kind of part and parcel with the conversation is that they're they're so routinely made fun of or spoofed or whatever. So I, but I don't I don't have a clear memory of of how this movie came to me. Did you did you have something where like you were like, oh, I've this is how I was introduced to the existence of Dirty Harry or even the line itself or or how did that work for you? Well, before we started recording, I sent Jared a video uh, on YouTube, and it's a clip from the show Whose Line Is It Anyway? And I, I'm pretty sure that that was my first exposure to Dirty Harry as, as a concept. If you've never watched Whose Line Is It Anyway, then Scenes from a Hat is a, a bit where they have the audience submit ideas for, for really quick sketches. Uh, Drew Carey will pull you know, randomly out of the hat, one of the suggestions. And one of them was uh, classic movie characters as played by Carol Channing. 
And Ryan Stiles was known for doing like his Carol Channing impression on the show. So he was the obvious one to, to go out and do it. And he did the Dirty Harry bit of, you know, mm. uh, was it six shots or five? And <laughs> <laughs> it's in the lucky? voice of Carol Channing. And it's really funny. Anyway, that I, I'm pretty sure that that's the first time I ever heard of who, you know, Dirty Harry or Harry Callahan is. That's so interesting. So you came at it through your love of whose line is it anyway. That's actually weirdly a way that I got introduced to a lot of pop culture. Like that's where I learned what Rain Man was. Like, you know, like a lot of classic movies I, I became aware of through comedy. Let's get to our overall thoughts though. Jared, being that this is your choice, are you happy with the, the choice you made? And what did you think about Dirty Harry? It's a running theme on this show the importance of seeing a movie twice and how much that can really change things. I'm going to do my best for the rest of this show to never chat about a movie just seeing it the once because things can really change between viewings. Mm. And it's not necessarily the movie itself changes. It could be your mood and all sorts of things. We've talked about a variety of this in the past. But overall, I really liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. First time I watched it, I was like not really vibing with it. I was really focused on Clint. I was really watching Clint Eastwood and I wasn't really getting in the movie's gear for the first like two thirds of this movie. What, I was was like, there okay. a particular thing that felt off to you? Not really. It wasn't, it wasn't something specifically uh, upon second viewing later on, my opinion of the movie transformed but I did notice what was maybe problematic in that first viewing. I wasn't aware of it in the first viewing, but it seems like the the jumper on the ledge mm-hmm. and the peeping Tom sequence mm-hmm. where Clint Eastwood is mistaken as a peeping Tom. Those scenes, and they're back-to-back as memory serves, they kind of pulled me out of the movie. And again, I didn't recognize this until second viewing. So I kind of started in in first viewing like, okay, it's all right. It's kind of boring. But then the movie really shifts gears when Scorpio, the sniper guy, is caught by Clint Eastwood in the football field. Yeah. And then after that, even on first watch, the movie became super interesting. Mm -hmm. And I was like, shit, this is really good. And, And we start getting into these scenes of like, Scorpio paying that person to beat him up and all the, and the hijacking of the bus and all these like really unexpected things that I certainly did not see coming as the first viewing wound down. I was like, okay, I've got it. I've got it. The the first half of this movie kind of is just okay. And it's a little overrated, but it closes like a freight train and, and the back half is great on second viewing. I really started to appreciate the first half of this movie more. And the way it kind of heads towards that more interesting second half. And I did note those two scenes I mentioned that I'm like, okay, those could be cut from the film. They don't really give us a ton of information about the character. And they really do sap the movie of its strength, I think. Mm-hmm. But the church, the choices they make creatively in that first half, I was really beginning to admire more down to the point of like, I was beginning to sort of uh, 3D art paint, blur my eyes a little bit away Mm -hmm. from Clint and not focus on him so much. And I was starting to see what the director was doing 
And I was like, oh, the camera choices in this movie are fantastic. Hmm. And you know how I have, there's a soft spot in my heart for this talent that I can't really put into words. And I don't know when it really applies, but a director's instincts for when to go handheld versus static is, is one of my biggest things of admiration. And they, they jump seamlessly between handheld and static shots throughout this movie. And it's super kinetic and it's, and it always feels right for the most part in terms of the decision they choose. Yeah. And so I, I really grew to like that stuff more just to kind of polish off like my overall thoughts. I would say I liked it significantly more in the second viewing. It's not a perfect movie. There are things I would prefer weren't there, let's say. But overall, I think it did end up surpassing the baggage in a way, which is something I'd like to talk to you about, too, of just like surpassing the baggage. huh? Yeah, because it's got a lot of a lot of heft to it. And to the point where I kind of was expecting something a little more popcorn ish. Mm. And I got something a little bit uh, different than that. So anyway, uh, it took me two viewings to get to some sort of conclusion on it. I think it's 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 quite good. It's not perfect, but overall, I liked it a lot. What do you think of Dirty Harry? Well, I think it's important to note here that I've only watched this movie once. Um, I had a pretty jam packed week and and wasn't able to it get happens. in the second viewing. It, you know, is what it is. So I think I'm kind of caught in the halfway point of your journey there, mm. where I feel this pretty much the same way you did on your first viewing, it sounds like, which is the first half is kind of a meandering mess. The character doesn't seem to really be working for me. Like the the whole sequence you mentioned of the the jumper on the side of the building is-, is Oh, that's awful. I, it's, it's straight up awful. And I have a, well, while we're on the topic, I'll, I'll <laughs> give this, this bit of trivia that I found, which is uh, this is the most like classic, Clint Eastwood shit I've ever heard. So I read this is from IMDb trivia, so take that with a grain of salt. But as is well known, Clint Eastwood directed the scene with the suicide jumper. So he directed that whole scene. That's just Drew side note here. However, it is often claimed he directed the scene only because producer and director Don Siegel was ill. This is inaccurate. Siegel was indeed ill and wasn't on set, but Eastwood had always been scheduled to direct that scene due to the difficult logistics of getting the actors, director, cameraman, and sound man all together on top of a small ledge. In the shooting schedule, six nights had been set aside for the shooting of the scene. Clint Eastwood, six nights for that scene? Hold on. Okay. okay. Clint, Eastwood told the studio he could shoot it in two nights. In the end, he shot the entire scene in one night. Okay, so that's based the on most what... Clint Eastwood shit ever. Because if for those who don't know, so Clint Eastwood Clint. as a director is known for only giving people one take, pretty much. Like sometimes two or three, but he he blazes through uh, shooting schedules, and he's always at, like saves the the studio money. They love working with Clint, but. Yeah, it's it's just so funny. Also, I think um, it should be said that I don't think his intention is to save the studio money. I think he just literally does not like being bogged down in yeah. over analysis and like he expects his actors to come ready. 
Yeah, and he just wants to get through it and get to the next thing and keep it moving. Yeah, I'm sure it's just kind of a nice bonus that he gets things done, you know, under schedule, so to speak, or whatever the term might be. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, that you're so right, dude. That is so Clint to just be like, they have six nights set aside, and he says he can do it in two and does it in one. But also, score for him being able to predict his timeline. He gave himself that second night. So if it did trickle over, he would have been fine. So he wasn't being unrealistic. He's an extremely he pragmatic man. Yeah, but but that said, that scene stinks. It it, it belongs <laughs> on the it belongs on the on the cutting room floor. I it agree. does almost nothing it to the movie. Yeah, it adds nothing. Yeah, like the it, the movie would be better off if they they were chasing the person with the tan suitcase, which is how that whole thing starts. And then they just lost him in the alley. And then the next cuts to the next morning and they're like, oh, someone was shot. Like the movie would be so much leaner. And, and that's a good four, four to six minutes of just you can make an argument for some character stuff in there that we get to know this person more. But eh, again, that's the type of shit that keeps it from being perfect. But so anyway, so you're saying how on on just that that viewing you kind of you were like that that shit could like go. it. Don't love it. Is kind of where mm-hmm. I'm at with it. I, I enjoy large swaths of this movie. The the stadium sequence where when they have the lights on and no one's in the stadium, it's it's oh. gorgeous how they shoot that whole oh. that whole scene. Mm-hmm. Like that that for me is the peak of the movie. And then everything after that is pretty great too. Like you said, the the scene of the guy Scorpio getting himself beaten up uh, to frame Harry Callahan is. Excellent. I, I never would have seen that coming, and, it, and it's really well done. Dude, and and that's a scene I was going to talk about later, but I think we got here organically. So sure. let's just talk about it now. We have seen in so many different types of movies, people being punched or tortured or harmed or whatever. I had never seen someone getting, like, beaten up, and it, like, I could, like, I felt it. Like, it's one of the most viscerally shot in terms of I feel every blow, every punch. And what is on top of that so great about it, in terms of it just being a visceral experience, is we don't really know what's going on at this point. No. We know that this guy has wandered in there. He's paid this person money for for $200 for something. We don't really understand. He gets beaten up, and then it cuts to the reason after the fact. And I love that temporary confusion that it plays in. Mm-hmm. Whereas an audience, we don't know what the hell is going on, but we feel these punches. And then like 45 seconds later after that scene is over, we realize like, oh, it was like a mini frame job to get the, the cops off his tail. And it's just a super smart scene. And again, I don't know how they did it, but I felt every single blow. Yeah, it's well edited. It's well directed. It's it's a great sequence. Great location too. Yeah, I I think universally the the location filming in this is pretty pretty good to look at. I I I like the direction. Uh, and and Don Siegel's not a director that I'm very familiar with. Same they, same yeah. They um apparently him and Clint Eastwood collaborated on five different movies, this one included, and. Yeah, they so they must have had a really good working relationship. Well, I guess it sounds like, I mean, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, Clint likes to move, and I think Siegel likes to move. Mm-hmm. Like he likes to keep the schedule humming along, is, is the impression that I got, and it make, would make sense how they get along so well. Yeah. 
But um, I kind of like, even though I was sort of ranting and raving about the importance of seeing things twice, I think I want to rephrase it. We should do what we can for always at least one of us to have seen it twice because I do think it's fun when we get into a conversation like this. I, li- I kind of like actually that you've only seen it the once because it's just kind of we're coming at it from slightly different perspectives. Yeah. Again, like I think and let me know if this matches your first viewing because this is kind of how I was looking at it. It's like, OK, let's see how interesting Clint's going to be. What are we going to think about Clint in this movie? So and he's obviously an, an uh, iconic sort of legend of Hollywood in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. So I think I was just like aggressively kind of focused on him and the movie was not really what I was expecting it to be. A lot of times that's a positive and I think at the end of the day it was here too. But because of that iconic line, I kind of thought the the entirety of the movie was going to be sort of playful like this. With mm-hmm. this sort of like kind of rebellious cop who pushes the envelope and doesn't give a shit and obviously those elements are all there but the movie takes itself i think more seriously than that line might have you believe in isolation and obviously the movie was not designed with this line in mind i'm sure they thought it was a good line but i can't imagine they thought it would live on and define the film and like be like 40 years from now, there's going to be some people talking about this movie and they came at it from this line, you know, so it's not not the movie's fault. That's how we before we ever saw it perceived it. But it's just interesting. So we we do have this sort of line baggage. And I think at the first viewing, I was kind of wrestling with like the movie being a somewhat unorthodox pace. Mm. And I was kind of feeling bored in a lot of those sort of. Uh, chasing the sniper sequences. I was like, this it started is just to get really... kind of repetitive. Yeah, it was like, I'm not tapping into this movie. Like, I'm kind of I'm fighting with it, and I don't know. And I was kind of like, eh, eh, eh. But on that second viewing, I started to really appreciate things that are common for me to generally enjoy, which is like lack of score and, and kind of different elements like that. I still do think it does sag beyond the scenes I outlined earlier, but like there is, I think some sort of a thing where the pacing isn't exactly perfect, but some of the creative decisions they do make. And I'm thinking specifically of the, like, I'm going to call it phone tag sequence where Clint Eastwood is running from, one phone booth to the next and mm-hmm. try, with the money with the bag of money and all that shit like that scene i really liked and yeah. i was like okay I'm, I'm into this like this is no music he's he's trying to get this thing to work and i thought that was exciting but then i thought it was a little first in some ways anticlimactic when he arrives at the cross and has that confrontation with scorpio so i don't know it's it's a bit of a mixed bag but I do kind of like some of the the choices that were made. Like, again, the no music, like the lack of music in that sort of phone booth to phone booth scene is really cool. That's no, really there's cool a choice. lot of, there's some clever touches in this movie. And like, I think at the beginning, I was kind of worried that this movie was going to be poorly written throughout because it kind of just like, I don't think the setup for Scorpio really like communicates like a, a a mastermind killer or or anything like that. Like no, it, I think it, you're right. I like I right. I feel like the early killings, like where he's sniping people, are all pretty 
poorly done like it's 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 doesn't feel like a master killer you know like yeah he's no i think that's fair dude he's playing into the trap that is set for him so uh kind of with seemingly without thought it or kinda, without analysis it kind of was making me mad that the police weren't able to get this guy because it seemed yeah. so easy to to just pick this guy off yeah you know like the only time I was ever impressed with Scorpio's intellect was the beating scene that we talked about. Well, but that's what I mean. Like, I think that character gets redeemed, but I'm just saying like, no, I agree. That's why I think early in the movie, the the movie just doesn't, doesn't really work, but it finds its groove for sure. It does find its groove. And again, it's like, Oh, now that you're talking about it, I wish we had more scenes in the vein of, him signing up for that beating. And what I mean by that is that displayed his intelligence more Yeah, because a lot aspects, the majority of time on screen, he just seems like a a lunatic sociopath and he is that. But again, to my memory, the only time I ever thought was like, Oh, that's a smart way to lose Callahan from your scent is to pay this guy to beat you up and tell the press that Callahan did it. Like that's the only decision he makes. Like we look when he, robs the liquor store to get the gun to hijack the bus with like that's a brazen move and it's calculating and it's relatively intelligent, but it's not the type of uh, decision in a film where I'm like, Whoa, look out for this guy. This guy's like a genius. Of course he can outsmart everyone. Like he just steals a gun from a liquor store. And the majority of the decisions we see him make in the movie are in that second vein. I'm talking about of Mm -hmm. like, well, he just seems like a, 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 a loser with a gun. Like he doesn't seem mastermindy at all. So I think, I think that's fair uh, sort of criticism that you're saying. And I think I agree with it, honestly. Yeah. I think it kind of robs Harry Callahan of a little bit of his status in that, like, you know, you're supposed to believe that this is like the best detective that they have, even though he's like dirty and he, you know, beats, beats up witnesses and shit. He's an anti-hero. Yeah. And it would also be fun too, if, and again, we're getting into that dangerous territory we tip in, we tiptoe into from time to time, which is like, are we write, rewriting the movie here? But it would be kind of fun if Scorpio is more intelligent than Harry, but Harry's strength is his willingness to bend the rules and not conform with what Scorpio predicts he will do. Yeah, uh, which maybe the movie does go in that direction. You know, thinking about the whole school bus hijacking, like Scorpio does not predict that. Harry is going to jump from uh, a bridge onto the top of a bus. So maybe it does end up going there. But I think that would all be more significant if we saw him, meaning Scorpio, be more intelligent throughout the movie. Like a a tougher match for Callahan. Yes, yeah. Not just like an unpredictable loon bag, but like, oh, this guy is calculating he is not random everything is part of the plan like thinking um it's all part of the plan part of the, exactly because i actually think uh and we'll get to the performances i'm sure i'm sure pretty soon i would imagine but i think uh both heath ledger and joaquin phoenix's joker are playing in this scorpio space and one of the great things about the dark knight and heath ledger's performance there specifically is that he makes it seem chaotic and sporadic, but we do see that there is a 
deeper twisted logic that shows sort of his genius. We don't get any of that with Scorpio, but I will say I do think both of those performers are tapping into what Scorpio sure. is doing in this film, even in look, but they're, I think they're doing a similar thing. Yeah, I mean, well, while we're talking about Scorpio, we, you know, I, I think Andrew Robinson is the actor who plays Scorpio, and I think he is doing a good job. Like, for what he's being asked to do, I, I think he's sufficiently creepy, and, and he pulls that off. Yeah, dude, I completely agree. Like, he terrifies me in this movie. Specifically thinking of the scene where he strikes a child on the bus yeah. and is like hijacking this bus is like, to me, legitimately frightening. And then the other scene that really got under my skin is when he confronts Harry at the cross after he's made him run with the bag of money at all these places and is like forcibly shaking his head and like eventually telling him that he's planning on killing him and the girl also and all this stuff like it's just this, it's really unsettling and really creepy and i think the actor commits to it so much that it's like it's one of those things too we've had we've had performances like this on the show in the past where if they go a couple notches too low or they don't really buy in enough the entire thing falls down i think this is another one in that sort of league of like he really goes for it and and the character doesn't work without it. Even though you and I both have feelings that like we wish the movie showed his intelligence more, never was it a performance issue for me. He was always on point, and there were certain scenes that really, really, I was like, this guy's fucking terrifying. Yeah. And 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 it's a it's a really strong performance because that's not an easy thing to ask an actor to do, to be like, hey, tap into the mind of a sociopath and make it convincing. Yeah. And it's like, that's a tough. Could you imagine being asked to do that? Where you're like, I have to try to pretend to, it would just be exhausting. And he, well, he, he really does it well. I read something where he developed Andrew Robinson, that is the actor, develop, developed a backstory for that character so that he had something to draw on. And his, in his mind, this character went to Vietnam and like lost a bunch of his friends and then came back and no one cared about him. And he was, you know, go just losing his mind kind of triggered by that. Like PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which I mean, explains a lot of the chaotic energy that he has, like in, in just his, like, you know, the manias that he's go, you know, dealing with, but yeah. And explains some of his skill set as well. And the time that the movie takes place. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I guess Andrew Robinson was apparently more of a, a stage actor at the time and, and he auditioned and, and got this part. We brought up Clint before, but let's go back to him now. Yeah, like, yeah. like, how did you feel about, you know, this, this is not his breakout performance cause this is coming after the spaghetti Westerns with Sergio Leone. So this is kind of his second big character that he's bringing out there. How did you feel about Harry Callahan, a.k.a. Dirty Harry. I liked it. And it and it was, even though I was taking my eyes off Clint a bit more in the second viewing, yeah. at the same time, I began to appreciate it more in a bizarre way. I know yeah. that sounds a little counterintuitive, but like I, I, didn't, I didn't get it. The first time I was watching it, and one of the first times we see him in – the suit he's in this suit as he's like walking across the street. It might be leading to the confrontation with the famous line. Do you feel lucky punk? We're talking about the hot dog eating scene. Exactly. The scene where he's just eating a hot dog and he has that little interchange. That dog looks Uh, good by the way. 
do you like a naked dog, by the way? That dog had nothing on it. How do you oh, do your well, dog? Well, no, 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 no. I, I mean, I'm all about. It did look like a good dog. Ketchup, like mustard, wise. and relish. I go all the way. Like if they have raw onions, throw that on there. Do you ever kraut? Uh, sometimes I'll kraut. Yeah. Yeah, I like chili. Kraut and, and some then, brown mustard. Hell yeah. I like chili. I like kraut. I like mustard. But if I'm at like a normal barbecue and I can just expect to have those normal things, I go mustard and onion, maybe relish. But anyway. Point being, there were, in this second viewing, all these fun character details that I was really picking up on more. Like, the hot dog that he's eating, he has that line with the guy that's like, okay, he eats the same thing twice a day, these hot dogs. But I didn't notice when he turns the camera takes a bite out of the hot dog. And I, <laughs> I mentioned this just now, but it's naked. It's a naked hot dog. Like, this is literally just a protein supplement for this human being. And then when he goes and walks across the street to confront the bank heist that's going down, he has these horrific elbow pads on his suit. I don't mind the elbow pads. The red vest is what gets me. Well, I'm just like, oh, my God, this suit looks so bad. How did they ever? But then I started to to realize that I honestly think the commentary held my hand a little bit this way. I will I will give it that. That's all on purpose. Like, this is the character. He doesn't give a shit about the suit. He doesn't care about how he looks. He doesn't need dressing on his hot dog. No, no. He is an obsessive officer. You know, I I was thinking of Al Pacino in Heat. There's that scene where John Voight is describing Al Pacino to Robert De Niro. He's like... He's on his third marriage. You think this guy likes to go home? He's one of those guys out there all the time. Like, just he's obsessed. And I was thinking, like, oh, Dirty Harry was like, and he often, the character often gets put on this pedestal of being like the original, like, anti-hero obsessive cop type. But the, the little details they put into it, I was really digging. Like, again, the suit looks like shit. That's the point. This is a, this is a guy who does not care. I love that he's still chewing a hot dog when he's saying freeze and holding a gun at him. It's, oh my it's God, fantastic. it's perfect. It's perfect. And also, like, he, he goes through the thing of, can you call this in? I'm trying to have a lunch, you know. So so he does have at least a small break from his obsession. But then, like you said, yeah, he, he, he's eating, and he's like, well, I have to stop this now. But he just stops out there. That is that is just such he's a He's still chewing his dog scene. when he's like walking over after he shot the guy. Yeah. And he, and he gets shot in the leg and he's still <laughs> just like eating and, and, def- <laughs> and protecting the peace. And even though the, these details we're talking about are not included in, in my mental image in any way of the iconic line before I saw this movie... They're all these kind of fun little details that add up to a movie we don't end up getting. Like if we were to see the entire scene out of context, even with this hot dog and he's chewing on the hot dog and he's a badass, like I would think that was what the movie's going to be like. But it really grows in an, in, a, in an interesting and more complicated direction beyond that point. But I do love that he's just like mowing on a hot dog with a bleeding leg. Is just like, you know, I don't know. I just it's it's. It's great. It, he is great. Well, how do you feel about Clint Eastwood, generally speaking? 
we met, we talked about it a little bit at the very beginning of the show, but expand on, on your feelings around Clint. I tipped my hand a little, but then I realized I'm also being a bit of a fraud here. I'm like, love Clint Eastwood. Love him. Love him. Some of his movies are a little cheesy, you know, but I love his performances. And then when I really am forced to confront that statement, I realize that I've only I'm only enamored by a couple of Clint Eastwood performances that I've seen. Hit me with But me. I am enamored. The number one, there is no second, is Outlaw Josie Wales. I love that movie. For a long, long time, it was my favorite Western. And it has not fallen off in my mind. I still love it as much as I ever did, but there has been a new love in my life in the world of Westerns. Drew knows this. It's Once Upon a Time in the West. I was introduced to Once Upon a Time in the West somewhat later in life, and I was like, okay, so this is my favorite Western. But I still have really sincere feelings towards Outlaw Josie Wales. And to me, like, that's the Clint I grew up knowing. My dad introduced me to that movie when I was probably in the 12 to 14 range, which is probably the perfect time to see that movie for the first time. It, it doesn't, I really don't think it ages much. It's great at any time, but it's, it's hard enough to see that young, but, and still be exciting, but it's not too hard if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the sort of Clint I like the most as I grew a little older and was in my early twenties, I finally got around to seeing unforgiven. And I had a feeling when I walked away from viewing that movie of like, what's the big deal? Something about it didn't really strike <laughs> me. Too. me. I, was, I was not taken I by don't. it. I, well, I, I'll, I'll say how I feel about Clint. I'm underviewed on him as an actor. So th in a lot of ways, watching this movie, I, w I was watching for him to be like, do I like him as an actor? I, I was still kind of trying to gauge that. But I've seen a lot of his directorial efforts. I've seen probably... 10 movies that he's directed. I mean, he's directed like 35 of them, but um, he's a real Woody Allen type, like cranks him out by that. I mean, like he just does. Like well, for the reasons here. that we, we outlined before in terms of he yeah. comes in under budget, he churns out movies that do really well at the box office. His name sells a movie. Like it, there's a reason Warner brothers had him, Christopher Nolan and like one other director as they're like stable for a while. Cause they were just like, we can pump money with these guys. We can bank on these guys. Yep. Even still, even though he's so successful as a director, I personally don't vibe with his movies. There's something about them. And, and I can, we, we'd mentioned his shooting style before of like one take, you know, just get it right. And I think so often in his movies, I can feel that coming through the performances that these people have not been given time to sit with their characters and, you know, let them get in, in, in the groove. Um, there are some actors that excel at it, like the, going to Unforgiven. I agree with you. I don't get the, the hype around that movie at all. Um, yeah, dude. And everyone was but, like praying at the altar. What? Like, I was like, that's kind of lame, right? But, but to um, what I'm saying about performances, mm -hmm. though, in that movie, the scene in the jailhouse between Gene Hackman and, um, oh God, original Dumbledore, Richard Harris. Just say OG the, Dumbledore. <laughs> the scene in the jailhouse between Richard Harris and 
<laughs> old Dumbledore himself and and Gene Hackman is electric. It's fantastic. They fucking crush it. But like not every actor is of their caliber and can just knock it out of the park in one take. You know, Tom Hanks and Sully is brilliant, but he's fucking Tom Hanks, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, to me, all the, the supporting performances in his movies suffer because of it. And it just takes me out of the movie. And I can almost never get into what he does. I will say I love Sully. I, I just mentioned that. That's one that I've really, really enjoyed of his recently. Um, but otherwise, yeah, he's just not a guy that I've ever had a lot of like fondness towards as, as a filmmaker. To defend Clint from a directing standpoint, it's not perfect, but I do like Gran Torino. I like that movie. I, I don't care for it. No, don't like it. I've never yeah. seen Sully, so I can't speak for that. Um, I remember seeing a bit of Letters from Iwo Jima, a small scene. That that movie's good. That movie's and good. And I, 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 and I liked what I saw in terms of being, it was intense and I was moved emotionally. And then I heard the whole story of that he did flags of our fathers and letters from Iwo Jima as kind of like a companion piece of viewing this one conflict from both sides. And I thought that's a great idea. And I've actually never watched both of those movies. Oh, so you, so I, you I do haven't see seen those. flags of our fathers. No, I never saw, I never saw that. Yeah. I, I don't care for that movie at all, but letters from Iwo Jima is very good. Yeah, but um, but no, but I mean, like, just to to show how hit or miss, and we can probably cut some of this down because I mean, we're talking about him as a director, even though he didn't direct this movie. But <laughs> no, but that, it's part but of the it, conversation. But it is it is part of the Clint conversation in general. He's made nine movies in the last twelve years, which is that's a frenetic pace for a director for for a man person. who's in his fucking eighties. Is he not in his nineties? He might I heard be in that his nineties. I heard he was born in nineteen thirty. 1930 you are correct he's 93 he's 93 so like we're talking the the timeline that drew just outlined was in his 80s that's insane that's completely insane but like this is the run like going in reverse chronological order it's richard jewell the mule the 1517 to Paris, sully american sniper jersey boys j edgar hereafter it seems that he's taking maybe a bit of a Hitchcock approach. I mean, he's his own person. I'm sure he's not trying to duplicate Hitchcock, but and actually, now that I'm saying these words out loud, I know less about his Hitchcock than maybe anybody. But one thing I do know about him is that he cranked him out. He did like a movie, if not two a oh, year. We talked about it on the Vertigo episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And it's like uh, some of them hit and were classics, and some sucked. But he cranked him out. So maybe um, that is the sort of, in the vein of that is the approach that Clint Eastwood is doing these things where he's like, I'm just going to do them. Some will be really solid to great. Others will be not so bad, right? But I'm working. I'm living and I'm doing my thing. How do you feel about him as a performer? How, how was he in this for you? And then what are some of, your other potential favorites, if there even is any of him in front well, of the camera. No, I mean, as I mentioned, I'm pretty underviewed on on Clint as an actor. Most of what I've seen of him are movies that he directed, like Unforgiven and, you know, like uh, Gran Torino and Million Dollar Baby. Like, I'm familiar with those performances. So a lot of his later in years stuff, but, 
you know, I saw the good, the bad and the ugly probably once on spike TV back in the day, but I don't think I've seen it since then. Um, you know, or something we should like get that. a Sergio on, on here someday, by the way. I mean, I, I would definitely be down to put one of those on there. I, for sure. But no, I, I, I'm underviewed. So I, I, that's kind of what I mean when I say I went into this movie kind of being like, show me Clint, what, what do you got? Like, like, do I like you or not? And did uh, you like him? I think overall I did is kind of my mm-hmm. response to that. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, like his, his way of performing, it doesn't totally work for me. Um, it's very monotone and I don't know. I, I feel like I'm nitpicking, but I guess no. what I'm saying is, it, like, dude, he's a legend. He can take it. He, he, he <laughs> nitpick away. The, you know, the gravitas that he brings to roles, it just doesn't communicate to me the same way that some of these other, you know, big dog actors that we talk about do. He doesn't have the the same presence because I, I don't know. I don't know. No, just, no. I think I get where it sounds like you're going with this, where like it seems simultaneously incredibly special and not special at all to me. And it's, it's a really bizarre combo. I don't know. He has a certain amount of energy and a certain type of energy that only he can deliver on screen. But I can also see it not being like, well, that's fucking magic. Like, you know. Well, it sounds like you you enjoyed the performance more than I did. Is Do I have that right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. But I wasn't over the moon about it. But and I hate to I hate to to cycle back to the line that we're kind of talking about when we speak of this movie outside of actually seeing it. The whole do you feel lucky punk? I think about how that line is delivered. And nobody else could have done it in exactly the same way at all. Even no, impressionist. Yeah. He is very it's, unique. It's, it's, it's ex- only he could do it just that way. And I don't know. You could say that about a lot of actors, but there's something about the way he does it is impossible to imitate. And that makes me like it. But in terms of like diving into the details of this performance, and if we look at, say, maybe a talkie scene or a less iconic scene where he's just talking about uh, what do we do about the girl? Like, do they, you know, we got to we got to save the girl. Like, I'm not saying I'm floored or like blown away by those scenes. I think he's totally fine. But he always maintains that that sort of it factor in within the frame. He does have a certain amount of magic. Like, again, I'm simultaneously impressed and blown away and then not impressed at all with what he's doing, but it's very unique. I will. It's it's special. I will say that his physical presence works for me in this movie for sure. Like he, the way he carries himself. And I think going back to what you were talking about earlier with the camera work, I think the way that he's framed and the way that they shoot him gives him a lot of power. Like he, he is a tall dude. He's like, he's, he's, leering over a lot of the people in this movie and it's it's i think in that way he has great action hero presence but d- the, his delivery of lines i think is what just doesn't totally work for me um i don't know i'm not an acting you know <laughs> major I, I i don't know what uh what good craft is but it just it just doesn't work for me personally most of the time i feel like we've got another movie on the board with him as one of the co-stars thunderbolt and lightfoot so we'll see how how uh, that changes opinions on him but but that was a fun little uh 
connection yeah. between the board. And I have a connection I want to lay on you. I think it dovetails really nicely with what you were just saying about Clint Eastwood's acting style and how he's not necessarily delivering lines in a beautiful way. <laughs> so there is an unsung dartboard movie night. I wouldn't call him a hero, but this is a person who's who was involved in a film we both really liked. And I would say I was surprised that I liked. And they have an uncredited role in this film. Do you want to have a guess at who this is? Is it a big dog? I wouldn't say it's a... Well, it's maybe a kennel contender. It's a med you dog? Tell me. <laughs> it's a med dog. It's a med dog. <laughs> it's John Milius. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, because he... Yeah. Didn't he have a hand in like writing this movie in some way? He is an uncredited writer in this on this film. And he was popping up in all of these special features I was walking to, watching today. And I was like, why the fuck is John Milius in these special features? <laughs> for, the, for listeners, Conan the Barbarian was directed by John Milius. And it's a movie that I think it's fair to say Drew and I both loved a lot. And I will say for myself, Adore I liked it a movie. lot more than I thought I would. It's really, it's not even tongue-in-cheek good. Yes, it is that. But it's also good, good. So Milius had a great bit in this interviews and in the special features talking about working with Clint Eastwood. And I just thought you'd really appreciate it. And it completely endorses what you just said about Clint Eastwood as a performer. And it shows that Clint Eastwood is accurately self-aware and doesn't take himself too seriously. So I love this. So he said, uh, Clint would give very specific instructions. He would say, you got too many words here. I don't say words real good. I stare real well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's what he would say and it's like again it's like yeah he doesn't deliver lines in the most beautiful way necessarily yes he has his iconic lines but he i think he clint recognized that his he knows strength, what his strengths are yeah it's like you were saying it's the physicality it's and, and you were saying more physically imposing but i think that goes to the faces he's making as well and things like that like that's really where a lot of the magic is it's not necessarily the phonetic delivery of things even right. though that at times can be really good too um so for like scene to scene day to day does he wow me in terms of his delivery no but uh he is distinct yeah on camera speaking of writers on this movie real quick i did want to bring up that uh another dartboard movie night alum terrence malick uh wrote one of the original drafts of this movie in sanity and what that happened makes was, no sense. Yeah, no, please tell makes, me. I don't know. I don't no know sense. anything about this. So, I mean, they, this movie was rewritten like twenty different times. And what ended up happening was when Clint Eastwood came onto the project, he ended up going back to like the first draft and being like, "No, no, no, this is the one I want to do." <laughs> so they just spent all that time on all this. But anyway, one of those rewrites was done by Terrence Malick, and it was a really like dark story. I, I, I forget the details of it, but it's just saying something. It's pretty dark as it is. Yeah, um, yeah. But apparently they really liked his story and they ended up using the structure of that for the second movie, Magnum force. Oh, so I think I saw a clip. I, I, I didn't know um, Malik was involved at all, but I think I heard today that the second movie is about uh, rogue cops Yes. Who like go 
go kind of murder crazy within their own, like killing civilians and stuff. So in that movie, it sounds like how Holbrook's in that one. Damn. That's awesome. Harry is forced to confront his own. So does is Malik credited with that one, or did they just not. steal his? John idea? Milius oh, okay. is credited for the screenplay, actually. Okay, so he did the, the credit for the second one. Yeah, but well, but I guess made, yeah. I guess they used a lot of the ideas that that Malik had originated. Before we wrap up on Clint, I did want to talk about the other alternate castings that could have been Harry Callahan, because as I mentioned, this movie bounced around a lot and was rewritten a bunch and. Um, in addition to that, it was offered to a lot of different actors. This movie was first offered to uh, John Wayne, uh, Frank Sinatra, Marlon Brando. All three of them turned it down. George C. Scott apparently turned it down as well. And then it went to Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Robert Mitchum, and Burt Lancaster. But I, but I wanted to go through some of the reasons that they turned them down because I found it really interesting. So like Steve McQueen turned it down because he didn't want to do another cop movie. He had just done Bullet pretty recently at the time, and and um, also set in San Francisco, if I'm not exactly. Mistaken. And and it like you know had that crazy car chase and yeah, it's it's a famous movie. It's like he didn't want to double up. Paul Newman was offered it and he turned it down because he thought it was too too right wing. Um, <laughs> which I totally understand because I want to get, get to some too. of the politics of this movie. Yeah, Robert Mitchum turned it down and said it was a film I would not do for any amount. You know what's crazy about that list? Uh, you just kind of ran through the full one and then also the specifics too. Is like I could see almost all of them doing this if they wanted to, and it would be different. Except for Paul Newman, I could not see Paul Newman doing this, and I would have too nice loved it too nice and i mentioned earlier once upon a time in the west is like my favorite western in that movie henry fonda is playing aggressively against type and he is playing a straight-up sociopath in that movie and i would i really wish paul newman had one of those roles i'm not saying you know dirty harry is a complete and total sociopath but He's extremely edgy and he's he's pretty dark. And I would like to see, you know, even in something like Road to Perdition, Newman plays a, a gangster, but he's a gangster who tries to be moral and at least tries to do the right thing. And I just had never seen him just play a, a sociopath or a dickhole or an asshole. And I would have liked for him to have one of those in there. But anyway, point being, all of them I could see it. And I think it's interesting the people saying it was – I think it was Newman you said who said this. It was too right-wing. Um, Burt I think Lancaster also said that. I also said that. So I think it's fascinating because I think it's a product of a pendulum swing. And it seems like the French Connection was tapping into this too, which was uh, – and this was something I was hearing a lot in the special features and – being born when we were, Drew and I have no idea how things actually were there. But they were saying that in the late 60s, there was this kind of obsession with the rights of the accused. And Clint Eastwood in an interview said, and, and rightfully so, like that, that is incredibly important. But I think as artists, there were a lot of people mining the alternative to that, which is like, if we take this too far and we too stringently protect the rights of the accused, what happens to the victims and what happens if we were to 
go too far in one direction or the other. And I think that is a really important role that art can play is as society shifts around, like counter argue against it and say like, okay, yes, that's right. But if you go too far with that, these are some of the negatives. And then again, if things shift in a more fascistic way, the art should run in the other direction and be like, okay, you go that way, but we're going to show you how wrong that is, if that makes sense. So you feel that this movie is in some way like counterbalancing the the movement politically at the time? I think I think that's what a lot of the filmmakers said, even though Clint Eastwood was adamant in saying that was not the intention. Gotcha. Clint Eastwood was adamant saying that, like, we just wanted to make a good detective story. Like, right. that was our goal. They weren't looking to speak for a generation. But I'm saying, I think creatively in the water at the time, in the wake of a lot of the negatives of the 60s that led to some of the positives of the 60s, meaning like, uh, you know, rights of the accused being amplified. I think there were some creative people who were swimming against that creatively and thinking like, okay, yes, that's true. But again, like, what if, what if that goes too far and we overly coddle or pad those who are sociopaths or we give them room to breathe too much. And I'm not saying the movie says that police should kick in doors and fuck with people. I don't think the movie's saying that, but I think it's having fun in the space of like, like it's a balance. And if, if we push too far in either direction, it's, it's, it can be disastrous. I think my, my problem with this movie politically is that it really I, I hate this mentality of the ends justify the means. Like I think I think that that is a really dangerous mentality, and that's basically this movie's whole ethos is like, you know, whatever it takes to get the bad guy. And it's like, yeah, that 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 sounds good on paper, you know, in terms of like, oh, like because we have Clint Eastwoods in the world to solve our problems for us, and they can be perfect and can do no wrong. And it's like that's a that's a rose colored glasses way of viewing the world it's like you give people the power to go above and beyond the law and you have chaos like it just it 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 doesn't work and and i don't like that 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 this movie seems to be and and i think it's reinforced by the fact that he like tosses his badge away at the end of the movie because he's he's saying like you know, I can't go through the system. I have to be beyond the system, you know? And, and I think that that's like, Oh really? Yeah. I took that a different way. How'd you take that? Um, I, I really wish they didn't make more movies beyond this. I understand why they did, but in, in isolation, that is coloring my perception of it. in, In my, in my view of that scene, I thought he was getting rid of his badge and was no longer going to be a cop and might not do any of this stuff anymore. I think he he that's that's how I what want is, what to is take the, it. I I just don't see anything in the text that suggests he wants to stop going after bad guys. I think he Yeah. like it's not that, setting that's that fair. up. That's fair. There's there's no uh to use like a bank heist trope one last thing. Like there's none of that in this movie. Um, no, like one but, of the primary antagonists for him in this movie is the system that is keeping him from yes. going above and beyond what he needs to do. Uh I think I misinterpreted the ending of the movie. I think I viewed it as he was Well, I don't think that that's necessary. Walking true. No, no, I I think it is because I viewed it as like he's walking away from 
law enforcement. He knows mm. he's crossed to a line that's too far. He just executed someone who he has history with and, and all these things. And I thought him throwing the badge away was that of him. Like, I, I can't do this anymore. They're not going to allow me to continue doing this after what I just did. And it was probably worth it. So I view it as sort of a, a sacrifice in the name of justice. But the fact that we have all these additional movies, which is maybe not fair to lay at the feet of, of this movie, dirty Harry, uh, but it's something we can't e- we can't avoid either because it's it's there. So, uh, but anyway, that's how I took it. But I actually think you're right. There's no way this character would stop doing this. This is in no. their nature to try to prevent negative things from happening. Well, yeah, because again, like the theme of this movie is ends justify the means. Like, like, and and to him, he uh, to me anyway. Like thematically speaking, this movie is building to that conclusion of like I I. I can't be constrained by this anymore. Right. This movie is, this movie's terminus is a surprise to no one. Like it's clear like that this is going this way. Now I know you, you, you disagree with the philosophy of ends justify the means. And some of the world's greatest atrocities have been done underneath that umbrella of logic, whether it be, uh, you know, the great leap forward is one that comes to mind, but sure. like, this is not a, this is not a Chinese thing. Every nation, every person is, is, is capable and has done things in that name. Um, do you have a problem with how it's represented in this movie? I, I think, I don't, I don't think I disagree with almost any of the actions he takes in terms of the stakes and his individual trampling on civil rights are there any decisions you think that Harry makes that are like unacceptable? No, I, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm objecting to is less what the movie is doing and more what it means in the greater culture. Because what I'm talking about is like there, like there were a couple of things that I found kind of disturbing in the trivia bits. Like for instance, this is completely unsighted. So I have no idea if this is true or not, but uh, I read that there was a police department in the Philippines that ordered a print of this movie to use as training film. Like that's the kind okay, of thing yeah, where it's like, I mean, I, I know that like you can't protect, you know, against all of that. But you're saying, you, I think you're exploring the ripple effects of art correct. and that they're very unpredictable. So like, well, I'm and, sure. But I, but I think like there's like, my problem is that Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel are in some ways contributing to the miss, like to, to the representation of, ends justify the means as being a good thing because like they were getting invited to like police gatherings and stuff and giving speeches for them. And it's like that, like there, there is a level of this where you're like, you're, you're promoting this as, as a mentality and it's kind of fucked up. And I want to be clear. I, I do like this movie. I, I, I enjoyed it. And I think it's as a piece of entertainment, I found it really entertaining. But I think what I'm upset about is that this movie doesn't do anything to say that Dirty Harry is doing something wrong. You know, it's, it's very much glorifying and, and celebrating all of those actions. You know, in a way, I almost wish he made more questionable decisions. Because I think it would make the conversation a little more interesting than this already is, and I'm certainly not saying it's dull. But if he if he did like if he beat up an innocent person to get an answer, like that would be kind well. That's of, what then, I mean. Then like, we get into that gray area of like. But is that's that okay? when I start to feel like it's it's justified to present this 
because it's it's questioning it at that point. Like the movie never questions whether he's doing something good or not. It's it's firmly on his side. The movie's not that complicated, right? In, in this specific Morally, stroke, yeah, yeah. It's not like like again because I think it's pretty. It, it would be pretty universal. It's like, is there anyone out there who is upset? that he steps on the stab wound of the sniper who has kidnapped a 14-year-old girl and is sniping people from balconies? No. No. Like no one is upset by that. But it's the so ripple effect of that. Right. And the movie is the movie is focused on showing the restrictions of the system and how at times the structure can be absurd and working against what it's intending to protect. So what all that is to say, this movie is playing in black and white. It's saying this is right and this is wrong. The movie keeps saying like, oh, it's isn't it crazy that they won't admit the gun? Like the gun's not admissible. Isn't it crazy that you know? So like again, the movie is is playing in in a sort of binary mode, which uh, to me is is oftentimes less interesting. But that's okay. I, I still really dig this flick. I do too, and I think it's. Um, but I think your points are valid that it's not. I just think it's worth discussing. I, you know, Absolutely. Especially in I a modern agree. context, you know. Absolutely. Um, I think we're kind of winding down here. I think we can probably mm-hmm. move into just kind of wrap up notes if you're if you're down yeah. for that. I've got a few yeah. of them, but. Yeah. Um, you start because I have to gather my thoughts. Yeah. Well, I'll start. I'll start with highlighting the score, which I thought was outstanding. Yes so good like the jazzy drums and like the, you know it's just it's playful it but it fits the mood it's it's great the composer's name is Lalo Schifrin um and he actually was the guy who wrote the Mission Impossible theme song oh i did not know that that's incredible i mean that's got to be a, if i if i was going to guess top 5 iconic scores for me oh, personally mission absolutely. impossible yeah like unreal Ask a random person on the street if they could hum it. Eight out of ten probably could do it, if not more. Yeah. So that I did not know they were were related to that, and I'm so glad you brought the score up because I also thought it was so good and so interesting and different. And I was like, I've never really heard anything quite like this. Mm-hmm. And you know me, sweet spot with the score. Like I like when it's used sparingly. So when the score comes into the film, it's in your face and it's it's almost a primary character. Yeah. But then it retreats and we don't hear anything from it for like 20 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes. Like it just vanishes. Yeah. And that, uh, that is the type of score. If, if the story is calling for it, that I really react to where it's present and it's significant, but the movie is not bashful about being quiet. And uh, I like that balance here. You know, it reminded me a lot of the score from the conversation actually. And it's interesting that the conversation came out a couple of years after this. I wonder if it uh, took a couple of cues from it. But anyway, I just, yeah, definitely wanted to highlight that. Um, I also wanted to highlight a couple of actors that I thought were interesting. Like, you know, you have those faces that are faces from movies in your childhood. And you're just like, why can't I place this person when you see them later? You know, I had two of those in this movie where I was just like, I... You, I've seen your face so many freaking times and I can't place what movie it was in. So the two guys are the DA and the mayor. Do you know what movies they were in? I know who, what movie I think the mayor was in. What's that? But it's a movie you haven't seen. 
It's Outlaw Josie Wales, and he's oh. incredible in it. But I don't know what you're about to say. You said this is from childhood? Well, so yeah. So the well, this one's less childhood, but mm-hmm. um the the guy who plays the mayor is the dean of students in Animal House. Oh my god, yes. I've only seen that movie once, but you're right. Yes. He's hilariously deadpan in that movie. It's great. I before we move on from him, I just want to say I love his voice. Yes. And he is going to be someone, as we continue with this show, any movie like 10 years before this or 15, 20 years after it, I'm going to be on the lookout for him because I had only ever known him through Outlaw Josie Wales. I had seen Animal House, but I forgot it was him. And I love his voice and I love the way he looks and all that shit, all the normal things I like. Yeah. I love this guy. I guess his name is... John Vernon and uh, in movies in this zone, I'm going to be looking for him because I like him a lot. The other guy I wanted to highlight is the guy who plays the DA in this movie. I guess his name is Rothko, but the actor's name is Joseph Summer. And he was in the Mighty Ducks. He was <laughs> Mr. Duckworth, who is uh, the guy who Emilio Estevez works for. And uh, like, that's why they get the name, the Mighty Ducks. And uh, I just remember like, a highlight scene from my childhood movie watching was Emilio Estevez going quack, 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 Mr. Duckworth to him like constantly. It's, so I, I just couldn't get that out of my head. That's great. Yeah. While we're in um, sort of like casting shout out zone, I really liked Clint Eastwood's partner in this movie. He's his name. The character's name is Chico. He's played by Rennie Santoni. And I don't know. I just, I really liked him. I thought the performance was super strong and I thought he had good presence and all that bullshit, but I just liked him. I've never seen him in anything else. I don't recognize him, but um, he really held his own. And uh, on and every scene he was in, I thought he was, he was dope. I liked him. Did, uh, did you have a feel? You just kind of, eh. eh. He didn't, he didn't stand out for me, but I'm glad he really? worked for you. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I liked him. I mean, I, I didn't. I didn't dislike the performance. It just didn't stand out very yeah. much to me. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, any other notes on your end? I just got one last one. The shot of Harry on the bridge as the bus is approaching, with a little bit of that camera shake from the momentum of the bus, because it's POV from the bus, or maybe even from Scorpio himself. So good. That is outstanding. I'm kind of surprised Great that that's hero not. Shot amazing hero shot if i was in control of what was remembered from this film culturally i might choose that shot because that that is just an incredible shot and then one that might be on my award show list for contender for best shot is that helicopter pull away shot from the football fields with the lights and the fog coming in, and it's when the Scorpio initial arrest happens. Yep. Um, it just was a stunning shot. And and it's a movie, like, I'm excited. If, if you ever see it a second time, I'm curious if you'll agree with me that on second viewing, the, the camera choices become more interesting. Because, again, I was freed up from the Clint focus, and was able to notice what the camera was doing a bit more. I'm like, there are some fascinating choices that are made in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I somehow had missed them. 
But that was one I did not miss. First viewing, that one will slap you in the face where it's just like, God damn, that is a beautiful yeah. shot. And it really makes me sad. This is a little bit of a tangent. But I'm telling you right now, Drew, I'm fucking done with drone shots. I'm done with them. You're already out. They just started. They don't look as good as helicopter shots. See, I really like drone photography. I, I want to specify. Helicopter shots, you know, when you're just doing a wide of like, you know, a big field or like, you know, whatever it is. That I agree with you on. But I do think that there's some really, really clever ways you can use drone photography at lower heights and and doing stuff like indoors and you know like i I don't know that's the stuff that i'm like this this is some really cool technology i should also clarify i don't like drone photography as a complete replacement for helicopter there it's it, it, it is a pretty crazy advancement and it gives much lower budget productions and stories access to a sort of shot they would not have been able to achieve 15 years ago even less so i get that but there is no replacement for a good old-fashioned helicopter shot they just look different and in my mind oftentimes almost always they're better question for you have you watched ambulance yet no the michael bay film yes I have not. Really, really good little action movie. But really? the drone photography in that, that is what I'm talking about with like, wow, I cannot believe you're pulling this shit off like that. It's really fucking cool. Dirty Harry Wise, I think that was it for me. I, I okay. threw those last shots out. I think it was a really good movie overall. Not perfect. I'm really glad we watched it. It is one of those iconic ones. Not quite a shamer, but good. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend it for people to check out sort of the origin story of this anti-hero cop character that has done so much these days and has been done for the past 40, 50 years and was probably done even before this. Maybe this movie gets a little too much credit for introducing the quote-unquote cop anti-hero. Like it was some of these recent Bogart performances we've seen have seen a lot oh, of kind of yeah. th- th- cops. It's like, okay, this, this has twins. been around. Yeah, But um, – I would recommend this to someone who who maybe wants to see where a lot of this stuff got started uh, to a degree of like the cop who bends the rules. It kicked off a new and, generation of this kind of character for yeah. sure. And I'm kind of glad we didn't get into that stuff specifically in a way because it's it's kind of played out. And a lot of people will say it's like, oh, there would be no Bruce Willis in Die Hard. There would be no sure. blah, blah, blah. And that's all fair. But you can read about that elsewhere. But definitely check this out, I would say, if you're into that sort of shit. Yeah, I I had a I had a fun time with it. I mean, I think it's like if you go in with with reasonable expectations, I think you can really enjoy this movie. It it's it's got a lot to like in it for sure. I say uh, we get something new on the board though. How about it? Love it, dude. You uh you broke my streak of three in a row with Dirty Harry this week, so uh, you're you're back in the in the driver's seat. I'm aping my chest right now for the listeners out there. I'm thumping away. If I'm not mistaken, the the current highest streak is still four in a row, right? That's never we, been touched. We both have done one streak of four yeah. in a row. Yeah. Even though with nominations for replacements, we alternate, I still like that we keep track of the streaks because it is kind of fun. And I bet someday someone will break the four streak. But 
In terms of nominations, if I'm not mistaken, Drew, I think it's my week. That's correct. correct. Last week I put Coraline on at number 11. Okay. I'm always trying to keep this board in a fun balance in a way. And last week I picked what I predict will be a cheesy movie. You know, some Jean-Claude Van Damme thing. Can't even remember the name. Time Cop or Super Cop or something like that. Soldier of Fortune. Doesn't matter. It's on the list. We'll hear it in a minute. Universal Soldier. That's it. Universal Soldier. (laughs) Um, And I like that choice. I'm happy it's on there, even though I couldn't remember the name. I think I want to go in a little bit more of a sincere direction with with a selection this week. Um, And it's a filmmaker. Jared's getting real, y'all. Pay attention. <laughs> not to say I was not real last time, but yeah, this is something I'm I'm actively interested in pursuing. This filmmaker. Oh, you're, you're into, so this is coming from the filmmaker side. Filmmaker side. The interest. And this is filmmaker recommends filmmaker sort of situation. Drew, are you familiar with the filmmaker Mike Lee? I am. Okay. What is your relation, if any, to Mike Lee? I have never watched a Mike Lee movie. Okay. So I heard a Paul Thomas Anderson interview. So this is another PTA <laughs> recommendation. He's never steered us wrong. I think he's got, what, three so far? Of, uh, he's Like PTA it. recommended yeah. films. One of them being Bad Day at Black Rock, which uh, whether or not you listen to the episode, Drew and I both loved that movie. Kicked Check it out. Ass. Will be on great. my best picture list for yeah. this year. I guarantee it. So he was in um, press for Phantom Thread around the time, and it's just one of those interviews. And just mentioned Mike Lee, this British filmmaker that he mentioned, and he just threw the name out there like, yeah, we all know this guy. And I was kind of thinking, not not he wasn't being a dick about it, but I was like, I should know this name, I guess. And it looks like this is a filmmaker who's made a ton of highly regarded stuff, and I've just had never really heard his name until PTA had mentioned it. So it's been something that's been on my radar for about the last eight months or so, maybe a little less than that, half a year or less. And, like, let's do it. Like, I've got some more fun ones in the chamber. We'll get to those eventually. I'm I'm happy with the balance, but this is something I, I really want to see. I don't know anything about this filmmaker. I'm very curious about it. Drew has not seen a single their films neither have i like let's let's see what this is all about so i'm going with secrets and lies that's the film i'm going for that is one that my brother really loved and i've had on my radar for a while so i'm really glad to hear you putting that on that's it i'm glad mike lee's secrets and lies going on at 16 oh i love it dude yeah that's that's right up my alley you know that Let's do a recap now with that added to the board. Number one, You Can Count on Me. Number two, Ikiru. Number three, M. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Universal Soldier. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Newly Added Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Tatan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Terminator. Love it, dude. Contrasting my shitty reading earlier. I think I kind of nailed that one. Dude, that one sounded great. I will admit, I will admit, (laughs) I I checked out, but I will listen back on the edit. And I bet. Thanks, Jerry. I bet bet you're right. Um, All right. You ready to see what we get? Let's see this thing. Let's see this fucking thing. 
the closest we've ever gotten to a bullseye without hitting it. Fucking super close. But there is a number. 13. Wow. You know, I thought about this earlier in the day when we were talking about the fact that there were two Clint Eastwood movies on the board, but it's Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Oh, my God! Dude, (laughs) I, I I film these videos of the dart throws. We don't we don't do anything with them. Who the fuck cares? But this it's evidence. We had two Sam Shepherds in a row, and now we're gonna have two Clint Eastwoods Insane. in a row. We do not design this. That That's incredible. Wild. I love that. The dart works in mysterious ways. That is beautiful man oh it. man we but that's one of my it. selections it's going to be our second michael cimino movie that we've covered um we're getting some young jeff bridges being a hottie i love it let's do it it's in the stars man i'm like oh let me do a quick streaming check please 1974's thunderbolt and lightfoot based on what i'm seeing here it's just pay to rent but eh, pony up a couple of bucks support a filmmaker who is not with us anymore. But anyway, um, <laughs> pony up his, a couple of bucks. <laughs> living descendants. Yeah. Uh, the estate. Support the estate. Um, Drew and I both dug Heaven's Gate. I'm sure we'll touch on that in our in a more fleshed out way next week. But um, but yeah, also kind of interesting that we went, we did a Heaven's Days of Heaven kind of recently. We got... Heaven's Gate tie-in. I don't know. It's kind of cool, but it the just does seem like... heavens are and the thunder and lightning is coming down. Dude, I I love it. And also, it feels like it's been a while since that was put on the board. You put that on pretty early, right? That was very early, and it was just a shoot-from-the-hip, random-ass selection. I'm just going to hint at something right now. Uh, there's another Dartboard Movie Night alum in this movie, but Jared, don't look at the cast list. I want you to oh, be surprised dude. on all of this. I'm going to rent the... The Blu-ray, if I can find it, if not the DVD, I'm going to avoid, avert my eyes from the jacket on the back, and I'm just going to watch this movie and try to go in fresh, man. I, I really don't know a ton about it. Yeah. I'm excited to cover it. Uh, we'll cover Thunderbolt and Lightfoot next week, and I can stop uh, stumbling over that in my my reads of the board. But <laughs> <laughs> for now, that's going to do it on our episode on Dirty Harry. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mike. Later. I'm thinking about like the the knocked up commentary with Judd Apatow, Seth Rogen, and Bill Hader. Like, has Bill Hader doing a Peter Falk impression? And I was like, who the fuck is Peter Falk? He sounds funny. Like the the character that that Hader is doing is amazing, but uh, I don't I don't have a reference point for this. So like when I watched 
a woman under the influence and like, you know, uh, Mikey and Nikki seeing Peter Falk. It was just like, you know, like you get introduced to, to like the history of cinema and like TV through those kinds of things still, I feel like. Absolutely. And now that I know who Peter Falk is, I am very eager to hear Bill Hader's Peter Falk. Oh, his Peter I, Falk impression is amazing. He's doing a Columbo bit. It's almost played out for me to even say it, but he is one of the best impressionists from like for sure our age range in terms of like when he was on SNL. He's obviously older than us, but um, he is he is great. What's he, great he, about he, Hater's awesome. impressions is that it's never just I can mimic the voice and the mannerisms. It's like mm-hmm. he's doing something funny with that character. Like he's got a yes. Like, there, there's a there's something else happening. It's not just look at me mimic this thing. To your point of how good he is, he he has, yes, he does the impression super, super well, but he puts this funny spin on it of putting it in a really well, it's a whole kind of weird environment. Yeah, it's a character, but he also airdrops them into a strange scenario, yes. you know, oftentimes, which I, I love that about him. But, but again, when you boil down just the strength of the impression itself, they're all they're almost always really really good. Like his, have you ever seen his Alan Alda? I don't his know Alan, if I have. Oh, it's so great. And that's that's someone that like, again, this goes back to your point of like, these comedians have really deep knowledge of a lot of these like hyper specific actors. Alan Alda is not really someone who's like super <laughs> well known or talked about necessarily. Alan Alda these days. of Mash, for those who don't know, <laughs> of Mash and uh, in the Aviator briefly. Uh, but uh, he has a very distinct way of talking, Alda does. does. And Bill Hader does an unbelievable Alan Alda. Alan Alda, formal doom. <laughs> Live a girl. And that dinosaur comes out and attacks me. Oh, God, you guys, that is great. That is just terrific. And how are you guys going to shoot the dinosaurs? Is it going to be uh, forced perspective? So, you know, that's how we shot Jamie Farr on MASH. Yeah, no, he's only about two feet tall. Do you know, you know what my first exposure to Alan Alda was? Mm. There was a science documentary that we watched in my seventh grade science class <laughs> that he hosted. <laughs> and was... it was just like, hey, I'm Alan Alda. And it's like, who the fuck is Alan Alda? <laughs> Yeah, it's like, dude, you just announced yourself like, you're, like you're Clint Eastwood. Nobody knows who you are, man. Like, and obviously, we're not saying that, but high school kids in the in the yeah. early aughts, they don't know who the fuck Alan Alda is. <laughs>